My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joint me is Fabiana Lara. Fabiana, you were recommended to me by another uh, person who is a big fan of yours and looks like you're very well versed in this space. But introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Thanks, Michael. Uh, I hope you can hear me because, believe it or not, I spend most of my days on Twitter, but have not figured out how to do the, the microphone thing. So hopefully <laughs> y'all can hear me clearly. You just mentioned that I'm a uranium expert, and I'll, I'll add to that to say I'm a self-professed uranium expert. Uh, you have a tweet of mine from uh, 2018 up here that I actually pinned to to my profile way back in the day. And it says, I predict a uranium craze is obnoxious, a silver bug proliferation in 2010, 2011. And that's actually how I started. So back in 2010, 2011, I was just a 20-some-year-old girl who had uh, made a tiny bit of money in business. I set up an online business teaching people back home in Brazil how to speak English, basically, because I spoke English. I thought, you know what? I can do a better job than most teachers. I was one of the first teachers to go online and just had, you know, your very beginning trying to Frankenstein my way into the business and trying to, to make something out of it. Educationally, I literally did not even complete high school. And so I just decided that I was going to go into business for a few different reasons, having to work to help support the family at a very young age. I came from absolutely nowhere, having, you know, come from a very blue collar slash religious background. I just decided that, hey, my thing is business and my thing is going to be building wealth. And so by then in 2010, 2011, you know, with, with a little bit of, of success, I started to see a bunch of di different videos and different content on silver and gold. I saw, huh, this is kind of interesting. Silver and gold, like did they made the actual coins and stuff. Turns out, yeah, people were talking about, you know, buy silver crash JP Morgan back in the day. And there, there were all these videos on YouTube. And I started to, you know, look into it and throw some money around here and there. You know, every month I would buy my pretty little coins. And turns out that was the top, obviously, because fools like me did not know any better and was actually the last of retail. I was exit strategy for a bunch of people, had no idea about it and just saw the price fly beautifully for a long time. And then what happened is I heard lots of people say like, you know, the real leverage, which for, you know, a semi-gambler is a treat. The real leverage is in the miners. You know, you really want to be in the miners. You know, there's so much more interesting, yada, yada, yada. And so I started to look at mining stocks. And then I was hooked because even though I had, you know, lost a bit with, with the silver and gold, some of the silver coins, most of them I still actually hold to this day as just, you know, a, rem a remembrance of my starting days. What happened is I started to really take a liking for mining. It was, it's such a bizarre industry and there's so much money that can be made and lost in such a short period of time. And there's a, a factor of it of predictability, of cyclicality that was really attractive to me because a lot of it was just about, you know, buying stocks at the end of 2015. Gold stocks were completely in the dump. Silver stocks were in the dump and waiting, you know, for 2016 to come around when there was a nice little mini bull market. 
And you saw just about all boats lifting. And so after seeing, you know, what could be done in this market, I was completely hooked, started to actually publish a daily newsletter on mining and mining news specifically geared towards investors focused in the Canadian markets. Uh, And that's called The Next Big Rush. So The Next Big Rush is a daily newsletter where I published uh, what happened in mining today uh, view that you can read in about three minutes. And I'm very deep into the business. I'm on the board of a uranium company and started to look into uranium in 2014 here and there with absolutely zero background, you know, in this industry, zero knowledge of the nuclear industry. But I bought into, you know, the story. I really bought into this whole story of, you know, uranium has sucked for so... And by the way, this is the story for all mining. (laughs) The the commodity has sucked for so long, it can not suck forever. Therefore, it must go up eventually. And by 2018, I, I was really started to learn about the whole nuclear fuel cycle and why uranium had to go up in price. And I saw the price go from 18 to what we're now sitting at. And I dare say this, 82, 83. I know that 85 uh, is what was rumored to be traded just last night. And this has been a completely wild ride. And I have thoroughly enjoyed you know, getting involved in this industry. And I, I think, I, I'm not even sure if I can say that the next big rush is uranium. I think uranium is the current big rush, Michael. All right, so a lot of different directions that we can go with this. You mentioned with the experience on the silver side being in quotes, exit liquidity. You only know that with hindsight, obviously, right? Yeah. And I don't know if there's any clear indication other than maybe the word that you use, which is obnoxious, right? Because it seems like at every major top, right, there's a certain amount of overconfidence and feeling that the future is guaranteed. And that's simply when things end up surprising the crowd. As you look back on that, are there early signs of obnoxious behavior, I guess, when it comes to uh, the uranium space, the current big rush, or are we still very early innings? Both. Uh, So there has been a lot of exuberance I would say that more so a couple of years ago than now, I think people have suffered enough for the last, you know, 18 months to 24 months in their portfolio, because this is something that has been very interesting. And and I think that there's part of the story that people are missing. So we, when I say we, I, I mean, people who have been invested in uranium for a long time, we've been saying that the price of the commodity itself was due to re rate magnificently for a long time. And so that is happening right now. What happened was that the retail investor, the average retail investor saw that happening and believed in that happening and bid the price up of the, I don't even want to say miners, most of them are not miners yet. They're, you know, development projects, but of the earlier stage equities. And what happened is they got ahead of themselves And I think that most people forgot that these companies are by and large a race to the bottom regarding dilution. They absolutely must raise money for every single step of their development. And so what happened was as, you know, the we peaked in prices for the the equities in November of 2021. So almost exactly two years ago. And then what happened is the market cap 
of those companies have grown to reach levels that don't make them super, super cheap. Not all of them. Some of them have actually become a lot cheaper, but that has happened. So a re-rate in the equities has happened in a sense, and a lot of it wasn't captured by, you know, the price going up. And so I think a lot of retail felt a little bit betrayed by the fact that the equities haven't caught up yet. However, what we're basing ourselves on is on financials, NPVs, and analyses that were made back in the day when people were expecting $60 per pound uranium to be, you know, the thing that actually switched the industry back on and production would come back on at $60 per pound. That was the general expectation. And so what happened is with inflation is that number that would entice production has been moving up to maybe 70, 75, maybe 80. And now we're sitting at that level already. And so what people need to do is do the hard work of going back to the financials of those companies and trying to figure out, because most of these studies were made several years ago, right, with old numbers. And so there is some inflation to be added onto it. But there's also the fact that, you know, 60 is no longer the target that, you know, if you want to get uranium now, you're going to have to sign contracts that have some eight to the front of whatever number that you want. And so I think that it's just hard work. It's hard work to understand what the companies uh, should be valued at right now, because all of these studies are essentially out of date. And so, yes, there was a lot of exuberance back in 2018. This is why I made that call. There was a lot of exuberance pretty much every year since to a certain extent. But the average uh, investor in uranium is extremely passionate. I know many people that have 80% plus of their portfolio in uranium. Yes, 80%. And uh, some of them have not much. I think this is the minority, but some people don't have anything outside of stocks. And so when we're talking about 80% of their portfolio, I'm talking about 80% of their net worth, which to me is insane, but okay, it's not my money, not my problem. So yeah, I have seen exuberance at certain times throughout this whole period. And right now that the price has completely taken off and that the fundamental thesis is getting better and better and the market is getting thinner and tighter, I don't see that exuberance right now. I think it's almost like investors are looking around and looking at the companies and not knowing how to value them. And so I don't see the craziness like I saw two years ago. You could argue that. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. <clears throat> Investors are distracted by other themes and narratives like AI and, and mm-hmm. growth and tech to not really kind of focus too much on your side. Now, the, this mentioning 80% uh, of their portfolio 
in a uranium, which is, you know, inherently volatile anyway. How should one think about diversification within investing in uranium? Obviously, it's all tied to uranium, but there are going to be some unique idiosyncratic aspects when it comes to individual miners, companies, their moats, where they're located. So how do you think about internal diversification? Yeah. And so I've been talking a lot about this because it's completely heartbreaking when you get a thesis right and you miss out because the one company that you decided to concentrate on or put a little bit of your portfolio in just wasn't the one that got any love from the market because you didn't understand you know, the risks within that particular company or jurisdiction, whatever. And so what we have is that, first of all, in mining, when you're talking about any commodity, you need to understand that you have the producers and within the producers, you usually have, you know, majors and then, you know, I guess, mid caps and, and miners. But the what happens is within that, there's usually lots of different options. If you go to like, gold or maybe even copper and a couple of other commodities, there is plenty of choices of companies. In uranium, when you're talking about producers, you're really talking about chemical and kazatom problems. So chemical being now diversified, they're not just a miner, they're, you know, in downstream in the nuclear industry as well. But they're mostly a Canadian company and jurisdiction wise, it's pretty safe. Their projects are great. They're in a region of the world where you don't expect, you know, any massive political issues happening anytime soon. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. But then you have Kazadam Prom, and that's another producer to look at because they are by far the lowest cost producer. They are probably making so much money, they don't know what to do with it right now. However, they do have a few issues and because they produce, you know, 40% of world supply, there was always that fear that Kazadam Prom was going to turn on the spigot and all of a sudden, you know, crash the price. Well, turns out that they can't for a few reasons. One is that they're in a region of the world where they have to ship out material by going through areas that, you know, are worn torn right now. And so it's hard and expensive for them to get insurance for radioactive material to pass through where it needs to pass through to get to the West. And also they've been struggling to get chemicals to actually pull the the mineral out of the ground. And so it's still a good option to take a look at within, you know, the producers. But then you think, okay, these are, you know, the two major producers. What else is there? Well, then you have developers and the developers Within that, you have to take a hard look at jurisdiction. I still hold some stock in Global Atomic. And Global Atomic is a company that was the market darling for, I want to say, the last two or three years up until a little something happened, which was a a government coup in the country where they're in. So they're in Niger. And I had the opportunity to, you know, to speak to some of the Nigerian leadership and they were very much pro-mining, pro-uranium, wanted to get more mining into the country. All of a sudden, oops, you know, they're not in power anymore and uh, a different group with different interests. And I'm not saying that they're anti-mining or anything like that, but the question mark that an obvious problem, a geopolitical problem like that brings is, okay, what happens to the Canadian public miners? And the question marks 
they are the thing that trigger the financing to stop, right? No banker is going to put their money in a West African country or Central West African country where a coup just happened. And so great company, great project. I do believe that otherwise it would have been completely fine. But thing is, you have to take a look at jurisdiction. When you're looking at jurisdiction, there's Africa, there's the US, there's Canada, and each of them is going to have some level of difficulty. It's not that there's not going to be a problem in Canada, for instance. It's just that the types of problems that happen in Canada are different to the problems that you're going to have in Africa. And so it's always good to take a look and diversify, you know, within different jurisdictions when you're looking at either developers or explorers. Now, explorers are, you know, more early stage. They have either not yet found any uh, amount of uranium or they're trying to figure out if the amount of uranium that they're finding is good and in, in, in economic. Uh, and so within that, you also have all these different jurisdictions. So I think that, you know, by diversifying in different jurisdictions and within, you know, the different stages of company development is really the best way and really the only way to play this uranium market because if you got in at the top in 2021 and you bought Niger companies only, like you're really suffering and the rest of the market could take off. I'm not saying that, the, that these companies aren't going to go anywhere and I, I still hold shares, but it, they've taken, you know, a big tumble. And it wouldn't really surprise me if there were other jurisdictions that were impacted in a negative way for different reasons. For example, everybody considers the Athabasca Basin in Canada, in Saskatchewan, to be like the Saudi Arabia of uranium. Great. Well, if I'm a native of, you know, the Athabasca Basin or any region close to it, and I know that the juiciest project is just down the road from me, and it's held by a little company called NextGen Energy, and I know that they're going to make absolutely like insane amounts of money. I'm going to go and rally for higher royalties. You know, I'm going to give them a little bit of trouble. And I do think that as uranium becomes more in vogue and the nuclear story becomes more and more popular, jurisdiction risk is just going to have to be something that people can't afford to ignore. So Diversify jurisdiction-wise, even more so than just development stage, because that's a big question mark. So I'm, my mind immediately goes to why bother doing stock picking then, and why not just yeah get a broad base that's <laughs> fun for the exposure to an ETF or or have you? What's the benefit to doing you know a deeper dive on individual companies? If to your point, you know you can get the theme right, but the stock itself doesn't perform. I would tend to agree with you, and I would say if people don't love the the industry and aren't willing to put in the work and the time that absolutely go to an ETF. You know, there are some really good ones brought, you know, put together, I think, two different ones. There are URNM and URNJ, I believe. There's, there's URA, which I criticized for a long time because they had a lot of downstream nuclear companies that had nothing to do with uranium mining per se. But I think it's a smart way to play it. 
Something else to make sure that people realize is that having some exposure to the actual commodity, you know, is probably smart. So making sure that the, the ETF holds or that you personally hold, you know, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. It was a really good idea, you know, from the run up from 18 until now. And I think it's going to continue to be a good idea because there's not much uranium to go around. There's not much yellow cake to go around right now. And, and fuel buyers absolutely have no other choice but, you know, to to get it like they, they can't they can't put thorium inside the reactors. They can't put copper. They can't put gold. They, they don't have an option. It has to be uranium. It has to be sourced from, you know, countries that aren't North Korea or, you know, questionable. And so playing that, I think, is essential. But if a person really wants to kind of get down and dirty into the weed of, you know, of probably making higher gains, yes, with much more risk. Then I think taking a look at, you know, smaller companies, new exploration companies that are being put together and, you know, becoming more and more popular. I I think at the end of the day, the gain is going to be outsized. But whether it's worth the risk or not, I think it's down to how much people are willing to do the work. And most people shouldn't really be messing with smaller companies. They should just buy the T- the ETFs. And some companies have as I understand it, they purposely hedge the price of uranium and others tend to not. Is that something that you tend to look at separately? That's a management decision, but I've got to assume that affects sort of longer term outlooks. It does. So let's take a couple of different examples. Um, We have knowledge of a company called UEC, Uranium Energy Corp, sorry. And they have been mostly U.S. focused for a very long time. And so what we know of U.S.-based uranium projects is that they're usually of lower grade. You need high prices to make them work. But if they do work, we already know where the uranium is. The deposits are pretty well delineated and it's a matter of permitting, which in the U.S. can take a long time. And then setting up shop, you know, there, there are uranium, small time uranium producers already in, in the U.S. And so they kind of, they can move to production faster if they can get to permitting and if they have the permitting, great. I think in this, in this cycle, actually, the only company that can say, you know, we have started production from nothing is actually a company in the U.S. called Encore Energy. And so props to them, you know, for being able to do that. And so. Back to UEC, they are completely unhedged. And so one of their selling points is that they will basically sell at market. Now, it's unclear to me whether they're going to sell it, sell their uranium in the spot market, in the short term market, or if they're going to sign contracts that say whatever the spot price is, that's what we're going to charge you. I don't know. And I don't know if there's any benefit to to sign contracts like that. But that is one company that chooses to do that as one of their, I guess, strategies. Most other companies are taking a hybrid approach. So say chemical. And the I guess the the Achilles heel is that we don't know exactly 
how these contracts are being signed individually, but we do know for a fact that in general, part of the pricing within those contracts is somewhat based on the spot price. So there is usually some sort of floor and some sort of ceiling. And part of that is, you know, traced by the spot market. And so it used to be fashionable to say, you know, the spot market doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. Only the long term matters. Only the long term pricing matters and nobody should really care about the spot price. I have been screaming at the top of my lungs saying that's complete BS because miners are usually long term thinkers. They have to be, otherwise they wouldn't be in mining. And what's happened is they saw what happened in the last cycle where the spot price spiked. And if you had contracts that didn't follow the spot price, then guess what? You missed out on the craziest bull market of your career. And so I think this time around, what they're doing is they're trying not to completely screw, you know, their clients by not going all spot price, but they're putting parts of you know, their pricing link to the spot price. And so that's also a strategy that, you know, has been happening. You know, the problem is we're not privy to that information. I think it should be made public, but that's something that even public companies choose to keep under wraps. It's a reset the room for the remaining 20, 25 minutes. Everybody, please make sure you follow Fabiana here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. I'm going to make the assumption that IPOs are pretty rare. Pickups this year, I need to say. We're just getting to a discussion around moats and the likelihood of consolidation going forward. How do you, if at all, factor that into your analysis of individual companies? And are there any sort of interesting or notable acquisition targets from what you're seeing? Okay, so it's funny you say acquisition targets because some M&A activity has already started in this industry. And I want to call people's attention to a specific company. I'm not affiliated with them. They're not a client. I don't own stock. But they were able to kind of come onto the scene and they're slowly but surely getting some really interesting projects, uh, mostly in Canada, and they're doing so through acquisition. Their business model, I find a bit unusual. It, it is more, you know, the Canadian style of doing business to promote more initially and then to do, you know, more M&A. But it seems like they, they've gone largely unnoticed and just done, you know, deals very quietly and they came up with some news i think it was just last week that they were going to raise some money and purchase two uranium companies that had you know their deposits in one of them in, in the athabasca basin in saskatchewan and, and another one in the Phelan bases up in Nunavut. and this company is called atha energy corp now if you take a look at you know who the guys behind this company are then you're going to see that they're strongly financial people you know former Canaccord which is a very strong financial house in Canada for the mining industry as well and it seems like they're deal makers more than anything and so I would take a look not simply on you know what companies can be acquired but what companies would be more interesting 
to be acquired by whoever's doing all the acquiring, if that makes any sense. And this was a complete surprise to me because I think they only came public in April of this year. Nobody's, you know, nobody had heard of them until things like this started to come out. One other area that I think is really interesting for M&A going forward, fingers crossed because I own a lot of stock in this region, is the U.S. Because like I said, a lot of the deposits in the U.S., they have already been found and, you know, the deposits are there delineated, like I said, mostly lower grade. The important thing to note is that even though it's lower grade in the U.S., there is sometimes a possibility that they can use the same methodology of extraction that the Kazakhs use. And so this is called ISR. They basically inject, you know, a solution into the ground and, and pull out the, the uranium a little bit more slowly, but, you know, it happens around the clock. And, and so they can do that with lower grade because you're not trying to grab the raw and then, you know, chop it all up and, and try to separate uranium from anything else. And so the U.S. is interesting because you don't have any massive deposits there. It's just not the geology for it. So you, you end up having lots of smaller deposits that could work on a hub and spoke basis if you can consolidate, you know, a region. And so that's part of, you know, what UEC has done. And I think that if any of the larger companies in the U.S. are smart, that they're going to start grabbing some of these other projects in the U.S. and just forming a really interesting U.S.-based Uranium and who knows, maybe U.S. uranium going forward with the bipartisan support it's been gathering that maybe U.S. uranium will be selling for higher than, you know, other uranium sold around the world. I don't know. Things are happening in the U.S. and it's super interesting to see it. Actually, that's a that's maybe interesting direction. You mentioned bipartisan. Is uranium at all politicized? Is there Are there any differences from what you could tell when it comes to the way Democrats view it versus Republicans in the U.S.? It was for a very long time. And it was very much believed in the industry, and I guess at least on the investing side, that a Trump presidency would really put uranium on the map. And to the contrary, nothing really of note happened during his presidency. And it was really only after uh, the world started to notice that China was making really great steps towards building their nuclear reactors and buying up uranium and doing deals with the Kazakhs and, you know, building uh, a trading hub right on the border with the Kazakhs. I think things like that and also the acceptance I think first by the European Union and then by the rest of the world that nuclear power generation is, you know, net zero when it comes to carbon and that none of the net zero goals are going to be achieved without nuclear. I think it was, you know, that realization of, hey, we're missing out on, on this and China is clearly ahead. And by the way, this helps us to push the ESG agenda and, you know, tell the whole world we're doing something that is good for them. I think that when that started to happen uh, within this administration, not the last one, I think that's when people have really started to take notice of nuclear and actually take a look at, you know, the options. One other thing that I think does help is the fact that the cost of energy has really gone up. You know, I don't know. It, in your 
particular how and how things are, but prices have definitely increased where I live here in Europe. And it, there comes a point where people look at their bills and they say, you know what, whatever I believe politically, I would really like it if I could just, you know, keep warm for less money. I think that's a good thing. And so I think it was, it was you know, a few different things that came together. And today it is very much a bipartisan thing. You had the left being very much against nuclear because the nuclear industry, I guess, didn't really do a good job at selling nuclear as clean energy. They're extremely smart people. I mean, in order to be a nuclear engineer, I don't know, your IQ must be something north of 100 and a lot. But when it comes to marketing, you know, like they, they just didn't sell themselves while the, you know, wind generation, solar generation just like took, took over the world and nuclear just sat there, you know, trying to figure out regulations and better systems. Fair, good on them for figuring out better systems and more advanced nuclear reactors. That's all great. But who are you going to sell it to if you're not marketing your product as a whole? So my generation grew up with thinking that, you know, nuclear equals bad, nuclear equals Chernobyl. And so I think it, it, for a while there, it was a little bit, you know, right, pro, left, against the whole nuclear story, you know, just nuclear generation as a whole. And then uranium, obviously, just a byproduct of that conversation. And it was funny because there are now, you know, different bills uh, being passed all around the world uh, regarding considering nuclear clean energy. And then obviously money flows into that and, you know, just more government help goes into all of that. But I was just watching yesterday, there was a conversation about a, a bill, I think HR 1042 in the U.S. And it didn't really sound like your usual back and forth of congressmen because they were like both sides were arguing the same thing and both sides were essentially agreeing with each other. It felt kind of off because it was like, huh, this is something you guys really agree on. And you're just going through the motion and trying to pass this as quickly as possible because you've both come to the conclusion that this is the way moving forward. And so the bill was approved for banning Russian uranium from, you know, the, the U.S. nuclear fuel cycle, essentially. Obviously, you have to get down and dirty with all the details and read the whole document to understand what the loopholes are. There are always loopholes here and there, but it sends a clear message that, hey, both sides of the aisle are behind nuclear and there doesn't seem to be much pushback. Maybe, you know, from Greenpeace, those guys still don't get it. But they're probably paid not to get it. Who knows? I want to pivot a little bit to other uh, commodity plays. Gold, silver. You know, there was a lot of excitement. I think a couple of weeks ago as gold finally broke out on the iron ceiling. That's been there. Pun intended, I guess. Not really a pun. <laughs> but I want to hear your thoughts on where we're in the, in the metals cycle. Separate from uranium. Speaking about next big rush. Are we going to get back to a stage where there's more obnoxious behavior coming back and the silver bugs and gold bugs start thumping their chest against the Bitcoin maxis? I think so. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. In short, I think so. One of the reasons why I believe so isn't so much linked with the commodities. You know, silver has just been the single most uh, annoying commodity to watch. It, it, it does nothing. It just doesn't go anywhere. And it goes over 25. We'll have a party. Whenever I mention silver, it's the most hated of all the metals. Gold is still something that's, that people are very religious about in general. But it doesn't seem like people are super excited about it. And they take a look at the trading that goes on. And yeah, I don't want to get too much into it because I don't think that's a good excuse. But yeah, there is some level of manipulation that happens in these markets. And we know that we've known that JPM has been slapped on the wrist. And I think HSBC has also been slapped on the wrist a few times for manipulating the gold and silver markets. But, you know, it, when it comes to gold and silver, what really gets my attention is that if both commodities simply just stall where they are price-wise, I think we deserve, you know, a decent bull market in the equities. I think when it comes to gold and silver, the equities are very cheap. You look at gold developers and I'm looking at teams that are super experienced, that have built billion-dollar mines, that are trying to simply do it again in similar jurisdictions with projects that, you know, aren't super sexy, but are super economic with recent studies being done to them, money making, you know, projects that are maybe a tenth of what is valued in the ground. And so there are tons of opportunities within gold and Silver. There's less so with silver because silver is a, there aren't many silver companies that are purely silver companies. Geologically, it usually occurs with other metals. And so it's hard to find a silver company that's purely a silver company because, you know, that's not how silver works most of the time. But yeah, I would take a look at those two, but I would be tempted to go look at the development projects for both of these because every time I look at a gold development stage company and you know if they have a recent study that you can have trust you can bet that it is highly discounted so yeah i am super positive on gold and silver going into 2024 any other interesting commodity or metals plays and you know whether it's on the industrial side or anything else that uh, maybe are not getting as much attention you think that they should be getting more investor focus on? Yeah, so I would just briefly mention um, a couple of others and then I'll let people decide for themselves and do their own homework because uh, this is still very much early stage for me with both of these. So a commodity that's really falling that will probably eventually re-rate, but we're talking years here, is, well, both platinum and palladium. People have taken the whole EV story to a level where it may not be at right now. And, you know, it comes and goes. It's just like lithium. We absolutely love lithium one day and then we absolutely hate it the next. 
and it's super volatile. And so you, what you have is bull market and crashes and bull markets and crashes within the same commodity many times over, you know, within a couple of decades. And that's normal because the world is starting to use that material for that purpose, you know, almost for the first time ever. Lithium used to be something that you took, you know, at rehab. And, and now it's something that is in pretty much almost all the batteries in EVs around the world. And so with platinum and palladium, especially palladium, it, it's something that, you know, nobody cares about it. If you discover it, people are going to be like, okay, how are you better than gold? Are you better than gold? What's this all about? What is the real demand supply story here? Can you even figure out those numbers and have any sort of trust in those numbers? So, you know, platinum and palladium are going to be something that I probably look at eventually, not right now, because, you know, the, the price isn't there for me. I think it has some ways to come down yet, but eventually I think it's going to be something to look at. If it gets bad enough, because I, I really enjoy a story when I, everybody hates it. So silver to me is very interesting. And something else that I think not enough people are talking about is tin. Moving forward, tin is the stuff that literally glues everything together, unintended. And with tin, what we have is not to the extent of uranium, because with uranium, supply and demand is very strained. And supply is super slow to to get, you know, approved bill and put into production. But with tin, you have some jurisdictions that are very questionable, that produce a lot of tin, that have had political issues current and probably future that will likely cause some supply, you know, issues. And I've seen a lot of different things play out, you know, in commodities. It is one thing for you to try to plan out and forecast demand. Obviously, everybody just increases their demand forecasts with time, with, you know, this whole move towards clean energy, then you're going to need a bit more of everything. You're going to need more copper. You're going to need more tin and uranium and a bunch of other things. And so demand is, yes, plan to increase to a certain level year over year slowly. But what really causes, you know, all these crazy spikes in commodity is usually a supply disruption that people don't really see it coming. And in part, that's what happened in the last uranium cycle. You know, there was a, a mine in Canada that got flooded, which was already, you know, a bull market. And then it just took it into overdrive. And so I would look at tin as something that could have some major supply disruption that might make people look into the, the companies that are now already, you know, making good money. Got a uh, couple of DMs from someone who's listening wanted me to ask about steel manufacturers as they invest in green production. How do you think about that when it comes to the EU leading the globe in that respect? I don't know is the answer. So the only knowledge I have of steel manufacturers is, is on their tech side, because that's the private investment that I made. And so I don't know about the supply and demand, you know, dynamics of that particular, you know, sector. It's like, I'm not going to comment on it. But 
I would usually put that in the same sort of category as copper because it's very much tied to how healthy is the economy? Are, are we building things or are we stalling? And so I think you need to have a good grasp of the macro, which is something, Michael, that you're much, much better than me. So I'm not going to take a stab at it. Depends on who you ask. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, uh, uh, for those who want to attract more of your thoughts and more of your work, where would you point them to? Uh, yeah, people can follow me at thenextbigrush.com. But just follow me on Twitter because, you know, the, the link is right there on my profile. And uh, yeah, I talk a lot about mining and a lot about uranium. So you got to have some patience with me because I don't talk about much else. Everybody, please give Fabiana a follow here. I'm going to be doing another show with Brent Johnson. You'll see that as a live video uh, where I'm going to be interviewing him with some of my colleagues. And hopefully I will see you all on the next edition of Lead Lag Live. Thank you, Fabiana. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.